Hello and welcome to Four Questions. I'm with the wonderful Dan Honig, who is Assistant Professor of International Development at Johns Hopkins SACE. So, Dan, I read your book, hmm. Navigation. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that somebody did. Fantastic. So, I read your book arguing that uh, performance improves in bureaucracies, specifically aid bureaucracies, when there is local autonomy and people at the coalface can work out what needs to be done and implement it rather than following top-down directives. So I'm converted. You're preaching <laughs> to the choir. But I've got this problem down. Mm. And what does an A bureaucracy do differently? If we recognize that autonomy matters, what does that mean for us on Monday morning? Yeah. Thank you. So thank you for the question. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, Alice. Um, really, really wonderful to sit down with you. Um, the, you know, this is a question actually that I've been uh, getting a little bit as, you know, I've been talking about the book, including at aid agencies. And um, occasionally people say, you know, okay, I'm sold. What do I do? Mm. Um, and first, I mean, before I jump into what the answer to that is, let me say, I think it's really interesting uh, how little we think about that. Even even those of us academics who often talk about the policy process, right? We often end our analysis before the kind of Monday morning question. Mm. And the idea that sort of even in schools of public policy, uh, even when we think of ourselves as, you know, applied researchers, mm. uh, we still tend not to ask that how do I make change happen? What exactly are the levers inside the organization, inside the policy space I'm thinking of? Mm. Um, and I'm no exception to that. So um, that said, you know, I sort of started developing a little bit of an answer to that question. Um, and maybe maybe I'll just start kind of uh, yeah, go for it. walking down that. So great. So first, you know, I think the question is, the first thing to understand is what at the coalface, as you put it, is keeping folks from doing the work you would like them to do, right? So I've heard from lots of managers who say things like, yeah, I know that my levers are flawed for influencing what my organization does, uh, but they're the only levers I have. Well, the first thing to understand is how pulling those levers is translating into action or not uh, in the field. And so, you know, let's figure out what those agents' constraints and incentives are um, from their perspective. You know, actually talk to people in the organization, or if you'd like, hire a firm to talk to people in, in the organization. Consultants do this all the time. Consulting firms do this all the time. Um, what is driving them? What's foremost in their calculations about how to design, how to report, how to act in particular contexts? So wait, can I clarify this for me? You'd like sure. the people to speak to, so you'd like people at the top to speak to people at the bottom to understand at least figure More about out their constraints. Yeah, at least figure out how the rules of the organization are being translated into behavior, into activity uh, in the field. And do most do most senior people in bureaucracies not know that enough? Well, I would say yes. I think that's right. That you know, lots of people at the top talk about their field agents, right? They've had the experience of being perhaps in the field uh, earlier in their careers, right? Uh, but it's but things have changed. Rules have changed. Reporting structures have changed. Supervision has changed, and now they talk about the field, right? They talk about what field personnel mm. do and want, but it's hard for them to get an honest answer, right? When your boss's boss's yeah, boss, sure, boss sure, sure, sure. comes and asks you a question, right? You answer it with regards to legitimacy, with regards to what you look like, mm. rather than with regards to what's really getting in the way. Mm. So when I say talk to people, I mean find some way to find out 
the real answer. And why do they need to know those answers? Why can't they just give them more autonomy? Well, because the question is more autonomy over what, right? Uh, and uh, what do we think that that, uh, that is likely to bring, right? Okay, so here's a question. Suppose I, had, I wanted to get an outside external consultancy to talk to my field staff. Could you give me four questions that I'd ask them? Yeah, four questions. That's a great right, idea. Yeah. Have you thought about, you know, maybe, uh, you know, it's a really good frame. Have you thought about a podcast or something around that idea? So what would the four questions be? That's great. So uh, I would say... Uh, you know, one, uh, what did you think this job was going to be when you took it, mm -hmm. right? Two, and what has disappointed you and surprised you mm. in both directions, right? Two, uh, name three things you would have liked to do that you think would have contributed to the organization's mission mm. that you didn't mm. in the last two years. Mm. Three, why didn't you do those things? Mm. What kept you from doing them? And uh, four, what do you think, what changes do you think uh, in management practice, mm. in promotion practices, uh, in reporting practices, would encourage you and people like you to do the things that you think uh, would lead to better development projects, which is, of course, our ultimate aim here mm. at our agency. So for the listener, I'm going to interpret why Dan has asked these particular questions. And this goes back to your point that you might have some mission-driven bureaucrats who are really excited and interested in the project, and they go in with these optimistic anticipation of doing all this fun stuff but they may be grounded down by the rules uh, so that's what you're trying to get at and trying to understand why they haven't been able to influence and who so are trying to achieve the reasons why they went in there that's absolutely right and you know that doesn't mean all changes that happen because you're sitting inside an agency are bad right you learn the rules of the system mm -hmm. you learn how things work mm -hmm. right it's not that uh, whatever you thought at the outset is right mm -hmm. and whatever's happened since is wrong. That's not what I mean at all. Uh, but it is worth thinking about what do you want to do to make things better and what's keeping you from doing it. And now I, armed with that information at the top, can say, okay, here's a set of things that I actually would like people to do. Mm -hmm. And here's a set of things that I know they would like to do them, mm -hmm. but I would not like them to do those things. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, you know, my model in the book is very much around uh, around judgment, right? Around educating judgment, uh, around what it takes to make nuanced assessments uh, of what's going on in the field, to use what I call soft information, things that you can see that are going on, but are tough to transmit up a hierarchy that your boss's boss's boss is never going to know about or think about, mm. not just because they don't have the bandwidth and the time, but also because they can't see it unless they're there. Mm. Okay, cool. So point one is we do this research project possibly by consultancy. What's point two? So I would say point two is uh, figure out what exists in your rules that's allowed, that pushes in the right direction, but isn't being used, right? Over and over again, I hear agencies talk about what do we need to change in our existing structures to make uh, to get better performance, right? Uh, I think that's an important thing to think about. Mm -hmm. But the earlier step is what does your system already allow, but you aren't doing? Why so, would they not be doing it if it was allowed? So over and over again, I see agencies that tell me, uh, that tell me things are not possible, right? Uh, and then I see examples of them doing just those kinds of actions in some place at some time. So 
my theory of the case is something like this. So uh, there's a set of formal rules that constrains the agency. Mm. Then over time, the agency develops a set of practices, a set of interpretations of those rules, which, of course, are never more, I don't know, liberal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but are often substantially more conservative than what the rules themselves allow. Mm. Uh, back in my practitioner days, I saw this as well. Mm. Uh, you know, people in the field would say, uh, we're not allowed to do something like that. I would talk to the folks who, you know, say, mm. ran procurement operations back at headquarters and say, is this allowed? And they would say, well, yes, under these circumstances, mm. that kind of action can be justified. Mm. Uh, but procurement is a complicated beast, right? Mm. Uh, what allowed actions are is not always clear. And frankly, people have not inhaled the rule book, right? Mm. So we're sitting here in beautiful London at uh, King's College, right? Um, you are bound, I'm sure, by some sort of manual of practice as an academic. Uh, have you read every rule that applies to you? Dan, I don't think this is going to surprise you if I tell you I don't pay much attention to <laughs> the rules. Fantastic. But, 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 but I, and I think it goes for so many domains more than um, bureaucracy or, or lecturers, but like the wider social field. So for example, there might be certain expectations in terms of gender. We might say, oh, you know, we should act in this particular kind of way and you stay within the line, you toe the line. But actually, it might be okay to overstep some of these things and people will let you get away with it. Yeah. But you stay within the line expecting that you won't get away with it. And if no one ever goes beyond the line, you always assume, ah, you can't touch that, you can't do that. That's absolutely right. So I think it's everything that we can just always be cautious because we're so worried about being reprimanded or negative social judgment, you know, whether it's negative judgment from peers or from bosses. I and in bosses, it's even more important because it could be a, you know, salary detriment or something. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the only thing I'd add to that is that, you know, in my model of the world, there are kind of two lines, right? There's the formal line of the of the rules, and then there's the kind of invisible line of practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can think about crossing both and potentially getting away with it. Mm. But the easiest thing to do is to cross that invisible line yeah. stay and stay inside the formal line. Yes, because that course. is already allowed. We need to change nothing to get mm. backing for that. All management needs to do is say, hey, this is part of the rules. Mm. This is allowed. Here's the process for going about justifying it. And um, in my work here in Vietnam, for example, bureaucrats of the 1980s, when they were experimenting with the economic liberalization, they were always cautiously reading signals from the top. So, you know, within the state socialist system, there were certain rules, but they couldn't reduce poverty, attract FDI by complying with those rules. So they were cautiously experiment, yet trying to stay within the rules so as not to get in trouble. So it was always this process of seeing what we can get away with within the rules. And when you see your friends in your neighboring provinces doing something and them getting away with it, then you're like, okay, so this is fine. There's this green light, or at least there's this amber light. Yes. And we called it fence breaking. They called it fence breaking rather. And absolutely. And, and the invocation of traffic lights, you know, reminds me of uh, our mutual friend Yuan Yuan Ang's and her, her brilliant work uh, on, uh, on the Chinese state mm. and the way that uh, bureaucracy is not a standard thing, a standard set of rules, but rather a set of complex practices where some things are, uh, in some domains, experimentation is prohibited. Mm. In others, yes. it is actively encouraged. Yeah. And in others, it's tolerated. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. The same with Vietnam and China, yeah. And those are informal signals sent by management mm -hmm. in that model, right? Well, I would just add to that 
So it's partly the signal sent, the traffic lights are signal sent by management, but our interpretation as to whether we, what, how we, how we interpret the amber is not just information from the top, but also information from our peers. So when you see your peers doing something and getting away with it, you're Absolutely. like, okay, so that's fine. So it's so, oh, so here's my question, going back to your point too, how do you support different people within the agency to realize what they can get away with? And how do we accelerate those feedback loops of people saying you can get away with this? Or, or maybe getting away with it is the wrong term. But how do we support that process of realizing the amber? Well, first, I think we highlight, uh, we highlight good action, right? And we mm. call it good action. Yeah. So when somebody oversteps, quote unquote, I'm making air quotes, I know yeah. quite visible to your listeners. <laughs> so when somebody oversteps that invisible line, mm. um, and it leads to good outcomes. Mm. Uh, we don't just tolerate that; we celebrate it. Yes. And there's nothing to keep us from doing that mm. because we're still inside the formal formal mm. boundaries of the mm. rules. Mm. Um, and we say, "Hey, here's what good practice looks like." Mm. I mean, the other thing we do is uh, we try to provide what I would call insurance. Right. Mm. So, uh, bureaucrats, all people, mm. are, are not just worried about their jobs today. They're worried about their jobs tomorrow. And frankly, if you've been in an aid agency, if you've been in any bureaucracy for long enough, you've seen different change strategies come and go. Yeah. And to really change your practices, you don't just need today's managers to encourage you to do that, right? You need to know that tomorrow's managers, you know, the other party, if we're talking about political appointees, mm -hmm. et cetera, uh, to know that tomorrow's managers are not going to sanction you for what you do today and that means mm. that means where we can making it not just uh something that's tolerated but something that's explicitly requested so here's a question do you think that the celebration and the acknowledgement should be on the outcome or the practice because often we think that within bureaucracies or aid you know we should reward for results because that allows autonomy and practice but what you're now saying is maybe shine a light on some of the practices but can that be yeah could you just speak to that yeah mention? so absolutely so i think it is about practices so look i mean if you're going to pick one case study to highlight mm -hmm. uh my my view would be pick a case where the practice moves in the right direction and the outcome of that practice was good but i think you're absolutely right that the idea here is uh in the short term, practice, not outcome. If we think in the long really? term, practice really, will lead to outcome. So here's the, here's the notion. Right? Yeah, persuade so, me of this because I'm not, I'm not signed up for this. All right. Well, I'm sorry you've gotten <laughs> off the train. You know, you opened with being, with being on board and now, now the conductor, the conductor's you know, gone the wrong We know from Andrew's work that it's so dangerous to celebrate certain practices because it can lead to isomorphic mimicry. Other people think, hey, that's the really good practice that my boss cares about, so I will also implement that practice. So it looks like I'm doing the right thing on the surface, but that can lead to a veneer of reform without the substantive change in outcome. And if we celebrate the practice, then that might lead to people in a specific locale not working out what's right for them, what's appropriate in that context. And it might lead to a certain laziness. Like, Dan, you're interested in getting these motivated, driven people. Isn't it all about them working out what's right in their context rather than yeah. passively adopting this practice? Absolutely. So I think, I think we're... Uh, it, this is really helpful because it helps me uh, sort of understand what you're hearing here. So. Uh, when I say practice, I don't mean a set of actions. Uh, I mean a set of working things out, 
right? So, oh, sorry, okay. So when I mean, no, no, not at all. So the, you know, I think what Matt's talking about, and I think the idea of isomorphic mimicry is people copy observable behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Because they believe that those behaviors are those that are sanctioned uh, by the agencies. Oh, the specifically the policy, I guess, in Matt's case, yeah. Yeah. So um, the the issue here is just that working out of stuff, right? And so uh, if I, if what I celebrate is that in Vietnam are now to make it an aid agency, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Are our agents uh, have creatively redesigned a program on the fly based on what they understood about local context and government, right? Uh, I don't think anyone in Senegal oh, right. is going to think okay, okay, I okay, should okay. do the same thing. So as sorry, we were we were equivocating over practice to what, celebrate, and what your practice to celebrate is the local autonomy. Okay, yeah, I get well, it. and the and the process of exercising judgment, right? right? Okay, yeah, but. You know, the other thing to say when so we talk we're about... So we making a distinction, so I... Sorry, let me clarify that for my own mind and for the listeners. So some people say it's dangerous to celebrate a particular policy because that policy might not be appropriate and it just leads the people to create the policy without implementing it, without enforcing it. What you're saying is celebrate this process of navigating by judgment. That's all right. Okay. Absolutely. So we just clarified that. And, you know, to the second part of that question mm -hmm. about outcomes, mm -hmm. you know... One of the things, frankly, that needs to be celebrated mm. is that navigation by judgment is okay, even where the judgments are proven to Even happen. when you fuck up. It's, the, embrace the process up. of experimentation. So that doesn't mean you fuck up in big ways for a long time over and over, right? But it so, will happen occasionally. Yeah. And, we, and, and, and don't other, hammer people too much if the process of experimentation has led to fucking up. And are other agents, going? and to those other agents, mm. right, to those people mm. uh, in the next office over, mm. Mm. they need to see that not only are they going to be mm. okay yeah. if they take a bet and that bet pays off, yes. but that if they take a bet and it doesn't work, yeah. that's not the end of the world. Mm. That doesn't mean mm. that they can make bad bets over and over. Mm. That doesn't mm. mean that aid programs can continuously fail and go in the wrong direction, but it does mean that... Uh, you need. It does mean that you don't need to be right every time, because the only way to be right every time is it's to a never try, exactly. right? never experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. But how do you, as a manager, penalize or punish lots of failure? Uh, okay, so we all admit that one failure is okay as an experiment. Two failures, fine. But how do you, as a manager, how do you deal with? A lot of failure. You know, how does a manager try to allow that sense of experimentation? Yeah. Get the balance right. Well, let me go to kind of another uh, domain where I think mm. we see similar similar mm. stuff, right? So, which is uh, doctors, mm. right? So doctors provide, right. you know, doctors engage in surgeries, right? Yeah, and sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they get it wrong. Hopefully not too often, mm. right? Uh, what happens? How are they judged? Well, they're judged by... Their peers, mm. they're essentially by their peers, by mm. their immediate supervisors, yes. by those who can understand the context of the decision. And they made. talk about like the process. Did you did you try to reduce risks? Did you walk through the checklist? Yeah, did yeah. you think about this element? Mm. What led you to believe this was the mm. right thing to do? Mm. Right? And they walk through the case. They walk through the process yes, of the decision. I see that. Uh, and if a doctor consistently is engaging in surgery that does not lead yeah like whacking a person with a dagger right right <laughs> or even trying their best yeah but, but making the wrong judgment over and over again well yeah, right, that that surgeon is not is not allowed so and is, also it, is going, it a fuzzy talk to you going back to your point about uh, insurance i guess doctors have insurance they do so they have medical insurance right um 
against malpractice mm. because that bad act. So effectively, we need aid agents to have malpractice insurance. And when the premium goes up too high... Do you really mean high, that? Do you, do you mean that they should have mal... In the same way that doctors do? No, do I don't. you just mean like de facto? I mean de facto. Okay. So I mean we need to find a way for the agency to insure them against making the wrong and when you speak to, and when you when you speak to bureaucrats is this a concern of theirs that comes up I, I worry that I'll get the sack if I experiment and it goes badly wrong I mean is this concern coming from them absolutely so it is coming from them and you know as is this idea that it's not just about the sack today it's about the sack tomorrow for yeah, what I sure. did today um, so you know you may be fine with my experimentation uh, but what happens when somebody else runs the division? Right. And I don't just worry about getting sacked. I also worry about going to name your least favorite post at right. the agency. Right. right. The boat. Yes, yeah, very easy. The boat. So that's a <laughs> reference to The Wire, a yeah. brilliant program. If you're listening to this and have not seen The Wire, stop listening right now. <laughs> Go to Netflix. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Invest, invest, invest more, 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 uh, more efficiently of your time. And... Uh, Yes, that's right. So um, you might be assigned to a post that you hate. Mm. Um, and mm. so it's not just about being fired or not. Uh, even where you have protections in that regard, you want to advance in your career. And it's perfectly okay. So do you think do aid agencies at the moment signal to... The, in what ways do they signal to their staff that experimentation is not okay? So now what we're talking about is stuff that's not strictly forbidden... So we're saying that things might be allowed, but agent, field agents might not be experimenting because they're still worried of the punishment for failed experiments. So how do we... Because it's not that the aid agency needs to change the formal rules, because we've already said the rules are fine, that there's space within the rules. How do they signal that the experimentation within the rules is fine? Yeah. So I want to take that last formulation rather than the first one. Okay. So yeah, of course. That is to say... Take uh, one of my botched phrases and no, eventually... No, nonsense, <laughs> nonsense. So first, let me say, I don't think the formal rules are always okay. No, no, sure, um, sure. Of but course, sometimes just, we'll need to change But you're just saying them. sometimes there'll be wiggle room. So exactly. that's point so two, right? So let's use that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, where there is wiggle room, uh, it's not about... So it's not so much that agencies are currently signaling that experimentation will be punished. Mm. It's that you need to go pretty far the other direction to get experimentation. Right, okay. There's a natural conservatism right, okay. to all of us, right? Some of us, Dad. All right. <laughs> to many of us. Right, many okay. of us. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps not many of us in this room. But Some yeah. of us could go the other direction. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, but that's that's the rarer, yeah, yeah, the rarer yeah, yeah, case, yeah, okay, right? Okay. And uh, for most folks... Mm. Uh, to engage in risky behavior, mm -hmm. uh, I need to understand uh, that I am going to be backed. Yeah, and it's sure. still going to be the case that some people are going to adopt faster. So, mm -hmm. you know, one thing you said before, celebrate those who've engaged in what you see as the right... So I don't know if you know, in Rwanda they uh, reinvigorated a traditional practice called Imihigo ceremonies. And uh, they, so it's public servants who've done particularly well in achieving various desirable outcomes. They would have these public parades of recognizing them and acknowledge them. Absolutely. How would you do something similar like that for experimenters within aid agencies? I would give them awards, right? Okay. So uh, at USAID, people mm -hmm. who've engaged in what they consider innovative work at Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting, or CLA, mm. uh, are celebrated in an annual uh, in an annual conference, right? Oh, awesome. Where they receive rewards and recognition. Um, in uh, and they do that for the whole agency. 
Uh, I don't know exactly how far the agency okay. the agency is old, but these are prominent large awesome. events. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, and of course, having been given an award mm -hmm. by your agency for the actions you engaged in is a good way to make sure it's going to be hard for the next regime to punish you for them. Right. right so okay. we can celebrate people mm -hmm. in in mm -hmm. just that way. I mean, this also reminds me, if I could say, of our mm -hmm. our mutual friend Blair Glencourse's uh, work on uh, uh, fantastic. Yes, integrity please, please talk about this. I love this. Yeah. So uh, Blair runs an organization called Accountability Lab, uh, and one of the things Accountability Lab does is celebrate civil servants who have engaged in uh, integrity-filled action on their jobs, um, and in a kind of uh, pop idol, American idol style format. It's so glorious. I just love it. Yeah. Ask people to text in and vote for their favorite. Yeah. So first of all, so, so just to add in, they, so, so they will have like, it's a three minute video or something of a particular civil servant demonstrating how hard they work and demonstrating the things they do. And then people vote for their favorite ones. And it's really challenging the perception that maybe all civil servants don't care. They're despondent. They're un unresponsive. They're corrupt. And it raises aspirations. It, it creates, you know, fostering pride, recognition, Absolutely. appreciation. I, I, I love it so much. Absolutely. I mean, I wonder. So we actually, could do more like that. And you know, I wonder. So here in the UK, mm. uh, Diffid uh, brought in a new operating framework called the Smart Rules, yes. which created yep. some more flexibility. Mm. I actually don't know to what extent Diffid. Uh, highlighted positive examples of the mm. use of the smart rules. Right, right. okay, so, so that's that would an be example. nice. Yeah, so that's a framework that already exists, mm. right? What does good action look like mm. underneath that framework? Mm. Um, and how do we get folks to adopt what is allowed, mm. but uh, I might want to see somebody else be praised for having adopted first before mm. I follow them down that path. And this goes to my favorite maxim that social change accelerates when we see that others are changing, but you tweet that and say social change ex accelerates when we see that others with this particular behavior are appreciated and rewarded. And so then we know that we also can be appreciated and rewarded if we adopt those kinds of behaviors. So you get a positive feedback loop Absolutely. of beliefs and behavior. Point four uh, is to uh, start a more open dialogue with your bosses uh, or with political authorizers if you're, if you're uh, close enough to the top. Mm. So that is to say, so far we've been talking about looking down the agency, right? right? Management as they relate to yeah, people yeah. in the field, yeah. right? Mid-level staff as they relate to those below mm, them. Mm. But we need to look in both directions at the same time. Mm. And if you're an employee, mm. right, uh, the more you understand about what your boss wants, the more you're going to understand what is going to be allowed, what is going to be rewarded and sanctioned. And that's not just true at the low levels of the organization, right? So over and over again, I see cases. So let me give you an example. Um, so I gave a talk, uh, two talks, mm. at the World Bank a few months ago. Mm. One to staff uh, and one to the executive directors, mm. right? Uh, and, you know, Chatham House rules on both, you know, no mm. names or positions, mm. etc. cetera. Uh, but I ran into at least a dozen members of staff who were shocked to learn the tenor of the conversation that the executive board had had. Oh, right? really? Mm. So people on staff would say, oh... You know, I bet you, you know, this idea that those from the top uh, are controlling things and that's a problem. Uh, I bet you that didn't go over too well at the board. And over and over again, I said, no, actually, I mean, it was, I can't say everyone, mm. you know, uh, stood up at the end of the talk and applauded, mm. right? But at the same time, there are plenty of folks uh, who are part of the authorizing environment 
who realize the problems uh, of the system. I really like your, your, your sort of common narrative here is that previously, I think David Hume and Pablo Yanguas wrote about this in World Development, they wrote that, no, these aid agencies can't possibly be, can't allow for more autonomy because they have these strict incentives. And what you're saying is actually not about incentives and the constraints within the organization. It can also be pluralistic ignorance that other people do not realize widespread appetite for reform and widespread support for reform. So actually, we just need to amplify and create those conversations, create spaces for dialogue and to s publicize that there's a bit more wiggle room than we'd all thought. And Absolutely. there's a bit more support for reform than we'd all thought. Absolutely. And I think this gets back to our original premise for this podcast is that you wrote the book demonstrating the importance of autonomy and you thought perhaps, correct me here, you'd have your hard job would be convincing everyone that autonomy was important. But what you realized in sharing and discussing the book with people, there's actually quite a few people who are like, heck yeah, we're all for it, Dad. Yeah. And so it's this discovery in the process of uh, sharing the book, you've discovered this pluralistic ignorance that we all need to overcome. Yeah, th I think that's a lovely way of putting it. That's right. And so, look, if you're coming to hear me talk about a book that's about autonomy, uh, for aid agents, right? Obviously, there's selection there and whether yeah, you've sure, showed sure. up, yeah, yeah. right? So I can't say that because uh, folks seem very positive about this, no, no, that yeah, means yeah. that's yeah. true of everyone. No, of course. But I can certainly say that there are a lot more folks at a lot more different levels mm. of the organization who are open to this kind of idea than I would have expected. Mm. And I spend less of my time convincing yeah. and more of my time talking about great so now what? Yeah, open up and create these spaces for discussion. So I'm really glad that you're, you're now pushing. I'm glad, one, that the door was open for this kind of work, that there's this appetite. So it's all about stimulating that space for discussion within aid agencies. So, so that's glorious. Um, five. Yeah, so my fifth point uh, would be don't just think about the things that you can see inside your organization, right? So a lot of my book is about the... Uh, constraints of focusing only on what can be measured, what can be codified. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, and even once we realize that's the case amongst about our programs, mm. that they're really important things about mm. the program mm. that we're not seeing, mm. uh, we don't often take that same lens and shine it on our own agencies. So that is to say, uh, how much trust do people feel uh, towards each other, right? How open is communication, right? Uh, how much interaction is there between people? What's the climate? Is it, is it a climate of criticizing? So we've all been in, I don't know, seminars or meetings mm -hmm. uh, in which the climate was one of antagonism, right? Yeah. Uh, or do we have a kind of positive, supportive, collegial environment? But how do we get from one to the other, Dan? Well, we think about what it takes to change those norms, which is a way of dodging the question, mm -hmm. to be perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think the answer of how we go from one to the other is uh, deeply contextual too. Right. It depends on exactly what's keeping us. So sometimes mm. it's going to mean uh, merely reframing what we're going to do, right? Mm. Sometimes it means forcing a change in practice, mm. in, in informal practice. Mm. Sometimes it might mean new people. Have you seen people do this successfully? Can you give me an example of how? I mean, this this whole question I think is cardinal for us all uh, as academics and practitioners alike and it's something that I'm really concerned about you know how we move from sort of adversarial combative practices to a more collegial uh, collaborative dialogue can you give me some examples where you've seen that transition happen yeah let me give you a project level example that okay. actually comes from the book okay but that I think could fit uh, in organizations headquarters mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. so um, 
In the book, I talk about a USA project uh, in Liberia mm -hmm. uh, in which uh, there was a quite collegial sort of um, sort of environment, right? In which a few years after uh, the project had closed, when I was doing interviews, mm -hmm. multiple people, multiple Liberian staff members mm -hmm. uh, were able to pull off the shelf or from a drawer mm -hmm. right next to them, right? Uh, something like a yearbook that had been made uh, by the project at its close because they felt like a family. And yeah, I, yeah, I remember this part of the book. It's cute, right? yeah. And, you know, one thing I think I might not talk about in the book is uh, this project essentially, it inherited the majority of its staff from a prior USAID project run by the same mm. contractor. Mm. And that project did not have this sense of collegiality. It did not have this environment. So okay. this wasn't just a startup, right? right okay. This was a group of people who had worked in one way and then began to work in another. So how did that happen, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it seems to me that the way that happened is that those who ran the project made clear to local staff that uh, and to each other that they were listening, right? They had regular meetings, mm -hmm. right? They listened to ideas. I'm sure the first time somebody raised their hand mm -hmm. and suggested something, they expected to be shot down mm -hmm. by the international staff at the top just the way they had been before. Yeah. But then they worked. Okay, so now I want to sum up our conversation, and you should correct me if I butcher it. So, our premise is that navigation by judgment improves the performance of bureaucracies, especially aid, and if organizations are already, if organizations are interested in doing that, here are some ideas. Celebrate, publicize, reward, experimentation. Show that experimentation is okay, even if on occasions it doesn't lead to the best possible outcomes and stimulate a more open listening environment where people can feel heard but to achieve some of those things we also need the consultants to listen to our field staff at the coalface to understand their specific constraints absolutely and i would say uh the one word i would want to throw additionally into mm. that mix is uh is trust yeah we have to build a culture of trust between the field and headquarters between the agency and its authorizers uh, between peers. Right? And I also think, I also think, and this is really unusual for me, for Dan, you're saying, Alice, we just need to be more optimistic, right? You're saying that change is possible. Don't think, that, you know, so many people have said that aid agencies can't be more autonomous, there are these constraints. You're actually like, actually, there's a lot of wiggle room. Start wiggling. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And that doesn't mean there are no constraints. Right, there right, are sure. lots of constraints. But start wiggling. But start wiggling and you know what? <laughs> we might be able to crawl forward uh, better than we, than we have before. Dad, I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alice.